0: Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence. There's a lot going on in the world and over here in the UK it seems like Covid's on the rise again. In fact, I had it last week and we've got an update on which Covid vaccinations are best. Zoom back in time to a pre-Covid era and we've got a paper that asks a seemingly slightly off the wall question about the link between health and who people vote for in the US. It's got massive tractions online, so you'll have to hold on right to the end of the episode to hear about that one. And a more niche topic, although one that's familiar to the BMJ, we've long been interested in too much medicine, um, including concepts like over-medicalisation and normal life experiences such as birth and death, over-diagnosis, conferring labels that are not likely to change outcomes or might lead to harm, and over-investigation and over-treatment, which might stem from any of these. It's often underpinned by diverse factors, including medical legal concerns and commercialization, as well as culture. And this week, BMJ has co run a conference preventing overdiagnosis, which happened in Calgary. And we spotted a few papers this week on obesity, cervical screening, and stable coronary artery disease, which we thought fitted in that theme and were worth talking about with you, our lovely listeners. I'm Helen MacDonald, Research Integrity Editor for the BMJ and resting GP and I'm joined today by Joe Ross, our US editor, an academic and physician and Juan Franco, editor-in-chief of BMJ, EBM, researcher and a GP. Say hello everyone. Hi everyone.
1: Hello Helen, Hi. thanks for having us.
0: Let's get down to our content for today then. We're going to start with obesity. It's a timeless medical problem um, for patients and clinicians to discuss. It's rising, I think, pretty much everywhere in the world. Would that be controversial to say, do you think, guys? Um, And it's a very difficult issue to address in a healthcare setting when there's so much about our activity levels and food choices that are rooted in our society. Um, But if you were going to think that interventions for to help obesity, to confer weight loss, um, were going to be helpful in a healthcare setting, you might think that primary care, where people often go to first, um, and beginning with um, non-interventional things like behavioural interventions, would be a good place to start. And so we spotted this systematic review and meta-analysis of um, randomised control trials of behavioural interventions to try and induce weight loss and Juan. Our resident systematic review expert and GP. This must have been top of your list of papers to read this week. Um, so, would you tell us a little bit about it?
2: Well, yeah, it's a very interesting um, review because what they they've identified that there was a previous review on on behavioural interventions uh, that could be applicable to the um, to primary care, uh, but they have noticed that some were. Uh, done by researchers and some were done in primary care effectively. So they said, okay, we're going to do a systematic review and update, of course, with the newer trials. What what are the trials that are relevant to the specific primary care context? So So
0: one where real clinicians did it as opposed to maybe researchers who were a bit special and different to normal practical life.
2: Exactly, yeah. And uh, so they took the data from previous systematic review and updated it and... uh, and they looked at uh, longer-term outcomes, which is uh, very important in the field of obesity, not only what happens at three months after an intervention, but what happens one or two years uh, later. And uh, so they identified uh, in total um, th- uh, 34 uh, trials, and uh, they looked at the um, the effect at 12 and 14 months, and uh, they found that there was um, a reduction in weight um, at 12 months of uh, 2.3 kilograms, confidence interval between 3 and 1.6, and uh, at 24 months of 1.8 kilograms, confidence interval between 2.8 and um, 0.8 uh, kilograms reduction, and um, and well this this is these results are really interesting because uh on the one hand the authors may interpret this as a sign of effectiveness, but um we as clinicians when you we see these numbers perhaps we're not easily persuaded that that these uh numbers might be relevant to patients, uh at least on the on average and, and even looking at the confidence interval. Um there was also another thing interesting that there was a lot of heterogeneity in the analysis. That means that some studies may have yielded different results. And the authors also combined different types of behavioral interventions. For example, some that were web-based, some that were in-person... Uh, Joe, you had a, some comments about the interventions Yeah, what, no one
0: dug into the table. Yeah, yeah
2: that's the, the table and the supplement.
1: I mean, he
0: sifted <laughs> it for you.
1: One, I think that was a great summary. I mean, you could you could say this is kind of like a, a long run for a short slide, I believe, as the uh, as the saying goes, because, you know, while some of these interventions are rather simple, uh, you know, maybe a web based self monitoring intervention that the PCP kind of coaches them along in. A lot of them are, are much more intense behavioral interventions delivered by a dietician or or a PCP or a nurse. There's some that included, you know, motivational interviewing, face-to-face counseling, you know, which means additional visits back to the primary care physician or, or somebody who, who's working as part of this. A few of them are diet-based and, you know, you realize that, you know, this, this it is a lot of effort uh, to bring people back, you know, engage people. And, you know, all of this for what, in the US, we would call it a five pound weight loss over 12 months, you know, that that's, that's not very much. Well, we need to know what these interventions can do. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is going to be the best way to address obesity at the population level.
2: Well, yeah, I think that that boils down to the the effect size uh, scenario, because if this was uh, public health intervention, uh a policy, and we see a change uh at 24 months of an a mean difference of 1.8 kilograms, then it's a big difference because you're talking about changing the way of an entire population, so sort of shifting the curve. But this is sort of more at the individual level and you have to deploy this sort of complex intervention. You have to train the physicians on how to use the platform, or, or what type of advice they have to use, and also the patients have to learn how to incorporate these changes. So it's a it's a lot of work, and uh, and and and, um, and and if you look at the trend that the effect size over time is even smaller, and you think that obesity sometimes is a lifetime condition, you you sort of think, well, what happened at three years or four years, right? So
0: so this feels a bit gloomy. To me. So, how does it alter what you say to people, do you think?
2: Hmm. I guess that, uh, at, um, I mean, we have to be honest with our patients. I mean, we, we, we can say that uh, engage in some programs and be optimistic at, at the short term, but uh, we might need to talk to our patients who think that we need complementary. Intervention. Sometimes an intervention in itself might not be the one type of solution, but we need, for example, changes in policy and engage with other types of uh, of of, of non pharmacological or even pharmacological. If it, but at least some of the drugs have been very disappointed for weight loss uh, so, so far. Uh, so if we think about this alone, it might sound gloomy. But if we think about it as just a different extra tool that might just might help a little pound, a couple of pounds more, then it's more. Yeah, I
1: guess what I would just note is, you know, I think as a society we need to start thinking about well, where is obesity best treated? You know, is it in the physician's office? You know, for the, at the primary care level. Is it at the population level? Is it, you know, are we, should we be thinking about this at the kind of systems-based approach in terms of our diet and nutrition and, you know, what our, you know, agricultural system is designed to, you know, create in terms of food? Is it about, you know, soda pop and all whatever you want to think about in terms of carbonated beverages and added sugars? I mean, there's just so, it's very complicated. And we've obviously, you know, this may be the theme of too much medicine, like, is it Obesity is a huge public health problem, but should it be medicalized and treated in the physician's office? We're just starting to actually see the first kind of effective medications. There's been a lot of medications that have been proposed for use in obesity that have not worked well. And obviously, there's surgeries that work really well when people are severely obese. And so, you know, I think this is just the the question in front of us uh, in terms of, you know, a primary care physician has limited time and has to ma- manage a number of different problems. And maybe this doesn't suggest that obesity is their best, you know, best this may be controversial, but maybe obesity is not the, the best investment of their time to do counselling.
0: Right, next to cervical or cervical screening, that we have had a small debate in our studio as to how it should be pronounced Um I now feel very self-conscious of both pronunciations and I'm going to attempt not to say it again in the entirety of this, um, this, this uh, little passage. Um, screening and cancers are often um, one of those classic examples of overdiagnosis and it's hard to roll back screening programmes. It's, um, sorry, The harms of missing cancers are often very visible and illustrated with very emotive stories and finding experiences of overdiagnosis and understanding and showcasing the harms of those can can be harder. So recently, the BMJs published an evaluation of England's cervical or cervical screening programme, evaluating a change in the approach to testing used and associated outcomes of CIN3 or greater. Um, so the context of of screening is that it's evolving to involve new options, particularly a move away from cytology sort of cell-based testing towards HPV testing, the virus most linked to um, the cancer. And it was interesting to note that in the editorial linked to this paper, um, they discussed the fact that in England, our screening intervals are perhaps shaped by the historic cytology programme, whereas there are some other locations and guidance from bodies such as WHO, which already recommends um, longer screening intervals. Um, and maybe these are being set up in, in less resource settings where screening typically happens every five to 10 years. Since, Jo, as I open this um, and it did look a little bit complicated, and included the word um, "real world data." I thought you might like to give us just thirty seconds on the on the essence of the paper. Yeah. Well,
1: Helen, this is a complicated paper because they're trying to do, uh, you know, an observational study on the basis of the England's HPV screening pilot program in the first and second rounds. So it's using data from 2013 to 2019. And I, what I would say is the takeaway is they're looking at the incidence of disease, whether it's CN CIN three plus uh, or cervical cancer are diagnosed um, after a negative HPV test, uh, and the role of cytology in that. Um, and what they essentially show is that um, there's decent uh, observational evidence that supports an extension of the screening or interval. Um, When a woman has a negative HPV test, but not when it's positive, that that should remain at at three years. Um, And again, it it it's simply essentially trying to thread the needle, right, and personalize. You could say, you know, what the recommendation should be. It's not one size fits all. Um, And when uh, you know, the 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 goal being, you know, how can we use our resources most efficiently? How can we ensure that you know women are not um, overdiagnosed or overtreated with disease unnecessarily, um, given the value that HPV testing brings to uh, the screening program.
0: So, you said the word decent observational evidence, which made me think on our theme of um, medicalization and screening what would be the best evidence? for tweaking screening programs, I suppose, as these contextual factors change, the diagnostics might change, or even the population might change over time as people are now being vaccinated um, against HPV, which is another, another variable um, to throw in there. And coupled to that, how what sort of evidence are we looking for if we want to look at de-implementation um, or ask the question, would it be safe to de-implement or alter or lengthen the screening intervals?
1: Well, Helen, you hit a number of the key issues that need to be considered, right? Because ideally, you do a randomised trial, right? And probably at the very beginning, maybe there was a randomised trial of for screening, even though actually randomised trials of screening interventions are rare. But that trial probably took place in the context of no vaccinations for hpv different uh, levels of diagnostic certainty because of the types of uh, you know diagnostic uh, technologies that were available to us and you know all sorts of other things the health of the population the who's being treated you know H- HPv uh, vaccination is not just of women but of men which reduces the overall rates of HPv dis- uh, and cervical disease so all these things you know influence uh the r- the impact of a screening intervention and um you may have heard my dog barking in the background which could, uh, distracted me a bit of course Of course, the challenge being you can't do a randomized controlled trial every time diagnostic criteria get better. For observational evidence, and you want it to be as granular as possible, but it changes over time, the population changes over time, and you want to be able to account for and adjust as much as possible. But I think that the best thing to say is, you know, we we need to collect data, we need to collect data on outcomes, and we need to be able to, uh, you know, observe women over time. And ideally, we have data from different settings. So it's not just all kind of all of our eggs in one basket we're just looking at what happened in England. But, you know, things may be different in Canada, they may be different in South Africa. And ideally, we're collecting data in multiple places to inform overall kind of screening procedures. Does
0: that help? I think the summary is going to be this is a complex paper, as you said, Joe, for a complex problem. And only those listeners who really want to um, think deeply about this are going to go and read the paper in a lot of detail. And maybe the rest of us, even though I'm no longer practicing might just do what the screening program
1: tells. Well, ideally, right? The, 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 <laughs> the, 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 the people sitting on the, uh, the guideline recommendation committees are going to read this paper, um, not not the individual sort of clinician in the primary care setting deciding whether to send a woman for uh,
0: absolutely. Juan's <laughs> yeah. nodding. You can't you can't see him doing that, but he is nodding.
2: Yeah, but what I perhaps what I wanted to add is that it's... Uh, since as as Joe mentioned that there are not so many so many trials on screening that the scenario is different for an intervention for a screening that is already implemented widely in the population that for a screening that has not yet started so um in 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 this case um i was i, I think that the, this is the sort of uh, uh, cervical cancer screening is, is uh, the um the paradigm of how we've been scaling back very reasonable um, when I did, uh, uh when I, uh, when I studied medicine, one, one of my professors told me that the uh, pap, pap smear should be every year since the beginning of uh, in sec, uh, sexual intercourse something like that. And that was already old when I went to, when I went to medical school and, uh, and, th- and, and, in the, and also, Scaling back an intervention such as uh, uh, cervical screening when in the population is so ingrained in the in society. Um, in Argentina, there was this um, hostess TV hostess that that uh, did a, a kitchen a cooking show or something like that in the sixties, and and she was very very popular. And she talked in one of the sh- her shows about cervical cancer screening, and a lot of people took uh, her advice and. And and that, but that advice was yearly, sorry, yearly smear. So, and and if you do that after um, decades, that's very well built in in society. So you, in order to really implement, you also need to understand what are the, what are the what the screening mean for people, not only for, for for patients and for clinicians as well, because otherwise it would be unsuccessful.
0: So our final paper in our medicalisation collection for you this week is about coronary artery disease which I really enjoyed reading and I felt like I wanted to get my slippers out although it's incredibly hot um, in the UK today. It was also surprisingly refreshing because um, it's written by some cardiologists and often with medicalisation it's kind of associated with these very um, specialist or subspecialist areas who who tend to see very um, extreme pathology and and generalize some of the things that happen there um, backwards um, up or down the food chain I don't know which way you would describe it towards um, primary care so it was very um, refreshing to me to read this um, very well written and communicated uh, piece from some cardiologists. Helen are you
1: saying that cardiologists don't know how to write what are you saying here? Well,
0: I'm I, I think actually a lot of doctors and academics are not great writers because I have to read a lot.
1: Of <laughs> I, I think I think what you're saying is you were surprised to see a paper that doesn't re- recommend revascularization from a bunch of cardiologists. From I
0: know, but it goes against all the things that you think. And honestly, it, it's it's so interesting. I, I'll i give you a, a few of the facts that I found interesting, and then and then you can maybe share yours, guys. Um, But what this paper is trying to do is to present and discuss the evidence that might um, underpin vascularization in stable coronary artery disease, i.e. where you are not experiencing um, angina. And a lot of this is quite obvious, but it's just very refreshing to my brain. It says critically, only some people with stable angina have ischemia. And only some people with ischemia have angina, and understanding these distinctions is key to an accurate understanding of contemporary revascularization and treatment options. Um, the other thing that that I thought this paper did well is it outlined the premise under which it might be worth doing the revascularization so so the the, the authors kind of argue that the premise of doing the re- revascularization stands if um they say all, but I guess you might loosen that a bit to say many or the vast majority of people with stable coronary artery disease progressed definitely to get ACS, um, acute coronary syndrome. And that if you then did a coronary intervention, it was then very effective at preventing those people with stable coronary artery disease progressing to have acute coronary syndrome. The other thing that I thought was interesting was just the history of it all. Um, and the fact that these early studies of coronary artery bypass grafting sort of predated options for um p c i which I'm not going to attempt to say in full um and statins and aspirin being the main medical therapies, but that it's those original cabbage studies that seem to underpin a lot of the recommendations that still exist around revascularization, so I think it's a nice um a nice um story. It tells you the story of this problem um, and how to frame it and where it all came from.
1: Yeah, Helen, I I loved it. I mean, it just was so clear, actually, in the writing in terms of how treatments for stable coronary artery disease developed over time, how our thinking as physicians changed over time, the clinical trials that have studied this issue over time. I'll just point out two of my favourite things. One was This little nugget where they talk about the paradox explained, where they say, you know, intuitively it makes sense that if you stent a lesion, balloon or put in a a stent or whatever it is, uh, people will do better. But actually, the reason medical therapy continues to sort of come out as being just as good, if not better, is this idea that, well... You know when you use a medication it treats the entire coronary vasculature not just that one spot where you stick a stent or you know balloon you know balloon angioplasty so i really liked that i would never sort of conceptualized it that way but of course it's true um but my i will say my most favorite is they um lay out as a full table all of the reasons that trials of revascularization where medical therapy came out as good or better uh, were criticized. And, you know, it's like all these criticisms from, oh, the, you know, medical therapy, you know, this or there wasn't a, you know, they didn't get far enough down the LAD or bare metal stents were used or, you know, it's, it's not blinded or they did, patients weren't symptomatic enough. And they like they just lay out all of the reasons why these criticisms are not fair. So um, I thought that was pretty brilliant.
0: It's so brilliantly written, actually, that I think you could just give it to a patient if, if they wanted to sort of read the the, the argument for not doing um, revascularization, it, it would be a very readable summary. Um, I think, Juan, what did you think?
2: Well, I think that the the problem of revascularization and and and, and is is pointed out and and made um, complex in saying that it's not just doing more or less. Uh, uh, surgery or doing more or less PCI, and and that goes goes back to the theme of uh, of too much medicine. And this is an area where we saw a lot of uh, of overuse of, of reverse sclerization, uh, especially PCI. And um, I, I just wanted to to remind you of the last episode where we discussed the different variations of, of reverse sclerization. Uh, um, across the world and how that related to worse or worse outcomes, and it wasn't so 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 straightforward because the US had a higher rate of procedures, but the outcomes were worse. So um, I, I think that this this paper sort of complements the the thought around that uh, n- not necessarily doing um, uh, more is better.
0: Good memory, Juan, and also excellent, subtle selling of our former content. So, um, no episode can go forward very long without the mention of um, COVID. And last week we talked about living papers and my my love for them. And I'm very excited to see that we've um, just published another one in the BMJ, which is looking at combinations which combinations of vaccines are best for preventing COVID-19 it's a living systematic review and network meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials looking at one two and three doses of vaccines against SARS-CoV-2 and Juan again this is very much in your um, in your zone of expertise a nice systematic review do you want to tell us some of the key findings
2: uh, so uh, this is in my review and, and network analysis. Uh, they searched the, the COVID um, database that is containing uh, the WHO database that has a lot of papers on COVID and it's a very good resource. And it was searched in um, March this year and they included 53 studies. And what I found interesting is that they included 19 studies uh, um, assessing the effect of vaccines on variants of concerns. Um, Including um, Omicron, and um, and they um, well they did a network meta-analysis where you compare all the, the the arms of the studies simultaneously, and um, you get more precise estimates um, 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 of effectiveness, and you could also rank uh, how the combinations of vaccines, uh, whether it's um, um, for example, two doses of adenovirus vector vaccine plus uh, mRNA or three mRNA vaccines. And and, and this uh, ranking sort of tells you, in terms of uh, effectiveness, uh, which combination is best uh, and which combination is less optimal. Uh, the, that ranking uh, yielded that the best uh, combination uh, is the... Three doses of mRNA vaccine, and the second um, in the ranking is two doses of adenovirus vaccine plus uh, one dose of mRNA vaccine. Uh, then there are several different combinations that you can look at. Table one of the of the paper, and uh, this is especially for infection uh, for the outcome uh, infection, whether it's symptomatic or asymptomatic.
0: Yes, and you can look at other outcomes like um, hospitalization um, or death.
2: Yeah, uh, so there, of course, the, since those outcomes are less frequent, uh, the estimates to, to do the ranking perhaps they are a little bit more uncertain. So we take infection as a, as a, as the one that we can derive that well, less people get infected will probably be. Um, um, uh, have, have better outcomes of, of hospitalizations and death. But yeah, there all this data and the multiple.
0: So I guess this paper is quite interesting because for some areas of the world where vaccines haven't been delivered, perhaps there's some immediate utility to this in terms of thinking, well, what would the best combinations be? And is it feasible and practical to deliver those? But in many other areas of the world um, where two doses and a booster dose have already been offered and people have already had something. What I found hard to think through with this paper, um, and I was interested in seeing whether um, these authors maybe want to become pen pals with us of some kind, um, since this is living and we have the opportunity for it to evolve over time. How might this paper involve, you know, might it tell us about um, the effectiveness of these vaccines against Different variants, um, or if new vaccines come out, would that go in? I wonder how, what they anticipate the live nature of this um, to do. I don't know, Joe or Juan, what you might want to see in this paper in the future.
1: Well, I I think, you know, what it's going to be critical, of course, is whether we get subsequent trials. Right? In the si- that is a good right. point. Si-
0: so it could be a very short one, <laughs> right, it could, could never be updated again. <laughs>
1: because, you know, at this point, um, we're starting to get observational studies from Israel, Canada and other nations that are looking at the effectiveness using real world data of a fourth dose compared to a third or just getting two, the kind of marginal effectiveness sort of vaccine effectiveness studies. I think the big trick, though, is, you know, are we going to keep getting trials? Because that's what this review is is aggregating, is trials, you know, ideally those at low or moderate risk of bias to inform our expectations around infections, hospitalizations or deaths. And so I think we have to push the companies, you know, if they're going to be pushing and advocating for fourth or fifth dose regimens that we need, you know, clinical trial evidence that demonstrates it's affected it's us Because I think what makes it all so much more complicated is that, you know, Helen, you said you started off this episode, you just got over COVID. I had it two months ago. What is it going to mean to need a fourth or a fifth dose if we're all now kind of increasingly getting infected, ideally crossing our fingers with not so severe disease? Uh, you know, does it mean that a vaccine is going to be effective as a booster in that context? Um, there's a lot of unknowns. And I think best case scenario we'd get additional trials that uh, can inform you know our, our our public and preventive health measures
2: so uh so, sorry to interrupt you uh, joe but i just wanted to highlight that the the this systematic review did include observational studies so um, but the, the they they try to analyze only those observational studies with low risk of bias which is of course really narrows down uh, the pool of what's oh, available oh thanks
1: one i I obviously should be reading these papers more closely before we start talking about them on we a podcast.
0: We had humble cardiologists, <laughs> now we have smug GPs, um, catching each other out. So does that offer this review more opportunities, the fact that it includes both trials and observational studies?
1: Oh, for sure. We're definitely going to get more observational research that this living review will then aggregate. Because I think, just like we talked about with the cervical cancer screening, right, as diagnostic strategies change, as other treatments change, as people get vaccinated, you know, we have to continue to uh, develop uh, and generate new evidence that helps us better understand kind of what what works best and for who uh, at the population level.
0: For our final paper this week, we are rewinding to a pre-COVID world. And um, maybe we'll call this this paper, The People's Choice, because it seems to be um, um, highly read on uh, bmj.com and being used on our social media this week. Uh, Joe, tell us about it. It's the one you've been dying to discuss.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is such an important paper, at least, you know, as you think about what I think should be called or considered the political determinants of health, which is Kind of a new term, right? It's kind of like the social determinants of health. But, well, you've
0: just made it now. <laughs>
1: but, you know, it's the way our uh, policy makers and the decisions they make and set for us at a population level uh, impact uh, the way communities do and survive and, uh, and whether they thrive. So this is a study that is very kind of big picture. It's looking at mortality rates in U.S. counties. There's more than 3,000 uh, counties across the United States. And it's examining um, how the, those counties voted uh, in various presidential elections, as well as other state level elections, like for the governors of the state, um, and then examined mortality rates over time. So very ecological. This is big picture. and, um, and it, But it does give an important snapshot into how people are doing uh, in the United States. And the reason this matters is because, you know, when we vote for somebody, we're not just voting for a party. You know, in the United States, we're pretty much a two-party system. You're Democrats, you're Republican. Um, but you're voting for kind of how, um, what you're going to invest in, in, in communities. Because we know that uh, Democrat, uh, Democratic counties tend to be um, governed by people who invest more in public health they tend to, um, you know, restrict, uh, you know, gun, uh, guns more. Are they more likely to restrict guns? they they have uh, stronger abortion rights, which is an important part of women's health and reproductive care. And of course, um, they have you know big decisions on funding for health insurance programs, particularly Medicaid, and how generous uh, Medicaid eligibility criteria are, which allows people to gain access uh, to see physicians and go to so hospitals. So
0: here we're talking about left-leaning policies in yes, general.
1: Yes, yes, that's exactly right. And so you know what they show is that um, in general uh, the in 2001, 20 years ago, uh, the age-adjusted mortality rates in counties that voted Republican and Democratic were pretty similar. Uh, But over time, from 2001 to 2019, while both declined, uh, they declined substantially more in counties that voted for Democrats. So so both declined, you know, which reflects that, you know, we have better medications, we have, you know, better access to to care, we have better health technologies. All these things were probably improving the health at population level, but they improved much more in counties that voted for Democrats than in counties that voted for Republicans. This was consistent across subgroups like sex, race and ethnicity, urban-rural location. Um, And that, of course, the the big changes were driven uh, by greater declines in death due to heart disease, cancer, other respiratory tract diseases, unintentional injuries, uh, and suicide. So, so big and important differences um, were observed.
2: Can, can I ask you a question, Joe? As a non U.S. person, <laughs> I, I, so one way to read the paper, of course, it's, it's an ecological uh, analysis, and uh, and and we it has its uh, sort of limitations and is thought provoking, but and 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 the first read that you. Mm, um make of the paper you tend to sort of ascribe the difference to the policies or the the, the top down effects of the elected officials um but um while i was looking at the subgroup analysis for ethnicity and i've noticed that for example the the counties with with uh for example people who are black or hispanic had, a, uh, had um, a, um, a similar decline in, in, in mortality, um, but white, um, for example, um, uh, uh, white people in the Republican counties had a slower decline in mortality. Is there a sort of uh, a cultural um, behaviors type of element to that, saying that perhaps people who live in those uh, places have different type of lifestyles that could be determining their 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 health uh, rather than uh, the, the effects of policy. Well,
1: I think it's really hard to uh, kind of untangle things, particularly in the United States, because racism is so prevalent and such a uh, important cause for adverse health outcomes uh, in the United States, and so. You know, you're right that they in both repu- counties that voted for Democrats and Republicans, the decline uh, is a little bit more uh, among Black adults in um, counties that voted for Democrats. It the biggest the ex- biggest exacerbation in the differences is among um, the white population, um, whereas there's almost no uh, difference in um, the Hispanic population. Um and I think that there's this is the kind of paper that starts the conversation about trying to figure out why are we observing this. And of course, it's really important to note that the data that was used for this paper end in twenty nineteen, just before COVID, where we know COVID, you know, profoundly exacerbated race-based disparities uh, in health outcomes, that there were, you know, much greater rates of death in black and Hispanic patients in the United States than there were in whites. And so, you know, all of this is the beginning of a conversation like, well, what are the policies that potentially could be leading to worse outcomes, uh, you know, in, in these communities that voted for Republican? Is it really about, you know, expanding Medicaid and Medicaid eligibility? Um, is it about gun control? Is it about investing in nursery school programs that allow, uh, you know, kids to, you know, have access to education and teaching and nutritional counseling like early in their life? Like who knows what it's about? Uh, but there, but there's a lot to it, um, and I think it's it's really worth sort of thinking through. And of course, this is a layered on top of you know a lot of evidence that demonstrates that health outcomes in uh like the Scandinavian countries that are more social social service oriented are have been substantially better than those in the United States uh despite you know more health technology more investment in healthcare resources more healthcare spending in the United States so um, I think this is very pro- provocative and would encourage everyone to not just read the paper but the the, the first author wrote a really nice um, editorial and stat news which is an online thing completely separate from the BMJ but uh, that sort of lays out uh, their thinking and why they took on this 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 topic
0: and has that conversation begun Joe you said um, you thought the paper should start a conversation in the us have has there been much coverage of the research paper in the news or evidence in general, of this conversation happening. Oh,
1: oh for sure. Um, you know, there there has been uh, some nice articles in big news publications like Bloomberg, Business Week, and USA Today. So, I think a lot of people have uh, this. This paper has brought attention to this issue in a way that a typical medical journal article doesn't.
0: Well, maybe we will have to revisit this topic and see what happens. That's all we have time for this week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and other platforms. You can subscribe and rate us. Please get in touch if you have any questions that we'd be happy to look into. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.
1: Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Thanks, Helen, for having us.
0: See you next time.